There are certain qualities that a filmmaker needs to have to succeed in the industry that aren't always considered the most savory ones. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School and host of the No Film School podcast. And my guest today, Elizabeth Allen Rosenbaum, is here to talk about her film Purple Hearts, which is really interesting in its own right. And I'll get to that in a second. But first, I want to talk about this idea of how a filmmaker needs to adopt sometimes angles, attitudes, and strategies that even you yourself might not always consider, I don't know, optimum. We talk a lot about the hustle and the grind and all that stuff and how so much more comes from a career based on soft skills often than actual technical ability. Elizabeth obviously has both. But in order to have the quality of her work seen, she had to be strategic. And she reveals to us in a really cool interview, I think, (laughs) how she managed to strategize and take advantage of opportunity or look into ways she could do little things here and there to get an edge in terms of her own opportunity, not in terms of an edge over other people. Um, Sometimes you just have to work the angles. And she puts it in her own context as being, you know, maybe I was a little conniving here and there, but these are good qualities in a filmmaker uh, because you have to look for opportunity. You have to look for ways to create something that isn't there and isn't being handed to you. And cutting through the noise is super challenging, as we all know. So she talks about how her career got started because she kept looking for those little things recognizing her own weaknesses, recognizing her strengths, recognizing who could help her and how she could help them to help her, et cetera, et cetera. Purple Hearts is a really interesting film, as I said before, because it tackles some of the touchiest subjects today. We are living in a very challenged time, and these are some of the issues that are at the fore constantly. So to make a movie about them, does a pretty good job expressing all angles and all perspectives is certainly not easy. Getting the money to make that kind of movie, uh, having the confidence that you're going to be able to thread that needle. These are all things we talk about and more. And what happens when you stick the landing and, and when you don't and why that's okay. So check out Purple Hearts. Of course, it is streaming and available to watch. But Check out the interview first or after. Either way, it'll work. No spoilers. Here we go. I'm very excited to talk to you about the film, but kind of wanted to start by going back a little bit and talking about your path to becoming a director, which is always of interest because there's so many people out there (laughs) who want to do that. And there's so many different paths. So we're always curious to know, you know, what were the first steps? And what were the critical moments that kind of led you to being a director of television and feature films? Well, I was an assistant um, because I was really drawn to the film industry, but there's not an easy ladder to becoming a director. And so I worked as an assistant, first for a producer and then for a director. And that was really helpful because it gave me a lay of the land and demystified some of the process a little bit. Like I went to a lot of film festivals and, you know, film school presentations and stuff like that for my producer boss. 
And so I was kind of walking in his shoes looking for directors. And he found, while I was working with him, Alexander Payne off of his short film and Gary Fleeter off of his first short film, stuff like that. So I was very much in that mode. And then I went to film school because there's no real easy way to go from being an assistant to being a director unless you start making things. Back then, it was really hard to get your hands on equipment that was worthy of like, you know, feature film jobs. So, so in order to get the experience with the equipment, you kind of had to go to film school or just be really well connected. <laughs> to shoot film, yeah, basically. I was shooting Whereas, you film. know, you're not going to, yeah, you're not going to shoot film unless you have a lot of money to rent. And any, it's just very difficult and develop, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so for me at the time, you know, and, and again, I'm dating myself, but at the time it seemed like a necessary step. I know the name of your podcast is No Film School. <laughs> and um... Oh yeah, no, but I went, I, I, I mean, I had the same experience when I was, uh, and so did, you know, a lot, No Film School has been around over 10 years. So, <laughs> but yes, many of us went to film school and yeah, at, for a long time, there was no way to get your hands on anything unless you were in some kind of program. Yeah, exactly. And I do, in some ways, envy up-and-comers now because you have so much of it, so much more access to equipment that's that's really high end, and you have a way to incubate your ideas and explore that you never could before. And so, and, and I was technically really a novice. I had directed some theater, and I knew a lot about like working with actors, but I was intimidated by the technical aspects. And obviously, back then there was a lot less latitude. <laughs> like I remember one of my little short films in my first year, we shot on reversal film, you know, Super Eight, and they you don't even, you can't adjust it once you get the dailies back. And it was totally underexposed. It was ridiculous. You couldn't see anything, you know, but then there's nothing you could do. It was like, oh, so you had to learn to light really well. And, and that was intimidating. So it was good to have the time, you know, three years to just really, really study and be a student of film in every way. And then while I was in film school, I'd always had my mind on, you know, making a thesis film at the end. It took me a long time to really learn the craft and learn like the stories that I wanted to tell because you're kind of finding your voice. But then at the end, three years in, I made a thesis. And because I'd had the experience of walking in the shoes of a producer for a while, I had a pretty good sense of like what to make. It had to have like a punchy log line so that people would, you know, take note of it and go see it because you don't have a marketing machine. I wanted it to have stunts and visual effects and crowds and drama and comedy, you know, because I felt like I didn't want anyone to say I couldn't do something. So, and then most fundamentally, it had to tell a story that you were interested in and that was deep, you know, in, in your heart and, and that felt tonally like something you wanted to do. So that was sure. how I, I, I made my short. And I remember I had a mentor because I had met a fair amount of people that saw how hard I was working when I was an assistant that kind of took an active interest in helping me because it's such a generous industry. And I remember one of my mentors saying, like, when you're when your short film screens at the DGA, you know, for USC, you want the curtains to open wide. Like yours has to be as polished and professional as a feature film or it's not going to get the attention you need. So I, I guess I had a slightly business mindset from the get-go, you know, and that I needed my short to, to function for me as a real calling card because I was in so much debt. <laughs> 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I had a feeling when you said thesis film, I was like, oh, sounds like USC. Because yeah. I had some <laughs> experience with USC. And then when you said DGO and USC, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And what's, one of the things that's nice about that graduate school program is that they kind of train you to deal with the industry and to jump through a lot of the hoops that you have to ultimately. So there is there's a lot of value. Did things go for you right out of school? What happened? What happened with the short? And did the business mindset pay off immediately? Or did it take a while? Like what got you out from there into, you know, it seems like not too much longer later, yeah. you were directing well, television shows. Well, it, it wasn't magical. <laughs> it, it, it did take a while. <laughs> there was a lot of slogging. So my same mentor, Gary Fleeter, who'd been a few years ahead of me and, and I was an assistant on his feature film, and then he helped me when I was at USC, he said, be wary because when you go there, there's a mindset that a lot of students have like, oh, I went to USC. Now, where's my cookie? And um, <laughs> I was like, okay. So I always thought like, now yeah. where's my cookie? So I, I was pretty ready for, you know, not having a fairy godmother come and like wave her magic wands and I would have a feature film. But um, that being said, I was also kind of savvy because of having been on the other side. And what happened was back then, and I'm dating myself, it was really hard to get your hands on the films because there wasn't like a way to stream them on the internet or whatever. Right. And in fact, like DVDs were a little bit hard still for students to get access to. So we found a company that was transitioning from film footage to pressing DVDs. And we were like their guinea pig. <laughs> um, I was always trying to find angles to get stuff. So I did get some DVDs pressed and was able to send them out. But before I did that, we actually pretended that we didn't have a way to show it to anyone except for, for them to come to screening rooms. And my mentor hooked me up with a lawyer. And so once I saw that there was like one agent interested in me, he kind of created what doesn't exist as much anymore, but will always be a fundamental part of the industry, which is like competition and the idea that something's a rare commodity. And if you're able to turn mm. it into that, then the agents start to chase it. So my lawyer enjoys that hunt and, and that game. And so he called all the agencies and he's like, okay, I got the next 
short film, you know, everyone's got to see it, but you got to be at this screening room at this time if you want to see it, you know? And so then CAA would like run over to like some screening room and like, you know, I don't think that my movie was that much more extraordinary than some of my peers, but it was just because I'd worked enough to, in the industry to have these interesting contacts that did find the sport in it and created a little bit of a feeding frenzy. So scarcity. Yes, exactly. You know, love, supply and demand and all of that. So, I, I really love that you, that you brought this up and this is part of your story because we haven't heard, I have not heard someone talk about this phenomenon and I thought you were going in a different direction, which would have been fine too, which was sort of just like, yeah, we did a screening and we invited a bunch of people, which is something you do, right? Sales agents, agents, whatever, development people. There's a lot of ways to try, but, but actually creating something of a sense of scarcity, that's a really good tip. Yeah. And I'm sure, though, that that's dated, right? Because they were carrying around my film reel. You know, it's like heavy in a metal can. And it would suddenly have stickers that would say like CAA, you know, Endeavor, like, all you know, Broder, all these old agencies that used to exist were stickers because the messengers were like bringing it around to the different screening rooms. But I'm sure there's some sort of equivalent to that now for like someone who could come up with a way to make it feel like an event and like a scarcity. Yes. And then because I had interest, from several different places, I took my time, which was scary for me because like, you're always worried like, oh, then they're going to lose interest. But I took my time and I had several meetings with some of the agents I was considering. And I think at that point, it becomes a little bit of an ego contest, right? Because you don't want to be the one that loses. So I decided, and this again was being coached by people that have more experience than me, I would go with the agent that was willing to continue to create a scarcity and would mm, would um would cr- would do screenings for all the studios and so my agent that i signed with did that and she was true to her word for like a good 6 months and she i gave her a stack of postcards that i'd made for some film festivals and she said that she would be rolling calls and writing little postcards she sent postcards out to each of the executives and then like you know sony would have a lunchtime screening at this time and so like you know the execs would go over and watch it and to this day <laughs> i go into meetings that was over 20 years ago i go into meetings and they're like, oh, I still fondly remember Eyeball Eddie, your first movie that I saw during lunch or whatever, <laughs> you know, because it was 25 minutes. So it was like perfect little lunchtime screening. But yeah, I don't even know if I'd have the gumption to do that these days. But that was how I kind of created a little bit of a stir. And I still, it still didn't happen overnight, you know, but I got some writing work within the studios. And then my name started to become known a little bit, you know, because I was writing. Which is a lot easier to get than like, hey, here's fifteen million dollars, you know. So right. I was open right. directing assignments exactly. aren't really available <laughs> often for those you know who don't know that that's that's harder to get. There's a lot of experienced people get looking at those, but writing is something you can kind of self start and mm-hmm. self train. And yeah, I I like that you talked about how you chose the agent because sometimes you're in a position happens where you get to interview agents and you get to make a decision. It can often be a very important one. And they often say things you want to hear. So it's hard to differentiate. But you made a good point. You were looking for someone who would fit in with that strategy. Once you started writing, did you always have still the idea like, I am going to be a director. That's what I'm going to do. And this is part of that path. Yeah. You know, I have to admit, I'm not a particularly good writer, but I'm a good, (laughs) I'm a good pitcher. I'm a good conceiver. 
And I'm pretty good at story structure. And fundamentally, I would say that's a third of writing, right? So even though it's not a terrific skill set of mine, I found a writer who was very good with dialogue. And I was like, I proposed, would you like to partner? I will take 30%. I, w- I will not take more than that because I'm not as good. But he was very shy. And so it was a perfect combination because I would get in there and be really ballsy and fun and put together these great pitches and, you know, have visual imagery to go along with it. And and I did do, you know, a ton of work on the story and on the project, but my dialogue leaves, you know, something to be desired. So, um, <laughs> but for me, it was survival because it was the way to get in the door. And so I don't write anymore, but I do do a lot of work on my scripts the same way I used to. But for me, it was just to, become part of the club. Right. And how did you identify the partner? How did you know he was good? How did you know, like, how, how did you find and pick a partner that you were like, this is going to work? Well, everything I'm saying is revealing how deeply um, conniving and manipulative I am. But, but <laughs> That's good. Um, <laughs> Those are important skills. Everyone <laughs> should have them yeah. or figure out how to have them. <laughs> so what happened was I was in film school and I was really broke. And I wanted to be a TA because it seemed like a really good job, like where you weren't just, you know, because I was working in an office and also at a restaurant and none of them were like teaching me enough. So I wanted to be a TA, but you weren't supposed to be a TA until a few years in. So I started to make friends with the guys in the office that were, I realized were sort of the gatekeepers. And so being a TA. Yeah. TA gatekeepers. Exactly. And I remember noticing like that they, one of them had a crush on Winona Ryder. So I like gave, I started like teasing them about that. And like, I gave them a year subscription that would arrive at that office, like to all the teeny bopper magazines and stuff. And I would stop in all the time. And I, wow. and I would say, if any TA jobs show up, like I am so eager to do it. I TA'd undergrad, like, please think of me. And then I was just talking with them and I found out that they were both aspiring writers that had graduated a few years earlier, but were working in the secretarial part of USC just to survive. So I was like, oh, share my scripts, share your scripts with me. And I just was being nice and wanting to get a TA job. But I read one of them and it was fantastic. And um, <laughs> I was like, oh, bonus. So this was the person that I identified. His name is Nick Puste. And I identified him to write my thesis film for me. And that he did a really nice, nice job with. And, and we had developed a good working relationship. And so then, uh, then he was the one I proposed to, to co-write with. I see. But yeah, but that's a great story because it shows how you were like looking for an angle. You were you were figuring out like how do I get closer to this thing that I that I want to do. Purple Hearts, like I want to jump ahead because you know you did a lot. You've directed a ton, and we'll get sort of into some of the things you've done and how they've informed you to this day. But you know, Purple Hearts is a feature film you've directed. Talking again about your where you work with writers now, how does, how did that collaboration with the, around this story as a director, not a writer, can you tell me a little bit about that? How did the project come to you and what was your relationship with the, the script material? Well, I was directing a pilot called Pretty Little Liars Perfectionist and I was working with a young woman named Sophia Carson and she was just transitioning from like teen Disney um, success into like more naturalistic work. And so she really did uh, appreciate and uh, the guidance I would give her and was very collaborative. And we loved working together and she has a great voice and everything. So before we finished, you know, we both said, 
we'd like to do something together again. And, you know, people say that all the time, but we meant it sincerely. So I mentioned to the producer of our pilot, hey, you know, if you think of anything sitting on a shelf that would be good for us, just bring it to us. And again, stating out loud your goal and being kind of ballsy about it. (laughs) And a week later, he brought us an early draft of Purple Hearts. And it fit Sophia like a glove because it was about a first-generation Colombian uh, young woman who's an aspiring singer. You know, she had to be able to speak Spanish and she had to be able to sing. And we both read it and felt like it was so timely. Like we loved the red-blue divide concept, you Mm -hmm. know, that sort of together makes purple. And both of us were just getting, you know, a little bit overwhelmed by current events and how the world is so divided. And it felt like a good way, wrapped up in a pretty little romantic bow, to deal with something that that was on our minds. And, And she's very passionate about the healthcare crisis, which is touched on as well and the, the immigration crisis so it, it it's all dealt with in the movie and it was something that we were really both excited about and then we interviewed um writers to to find the right person to to fit the bill because the first writer had gotten a very strong like um template out on the page but it had been written years before and it was very male-centric the lead was very clearly the man so we wanted to bring in a woman who would sort of turn the movie around a little bit, make it her movie, and bring a sort of modern sensibility and a, and a female perspective to it. I just want to kind of, there's so much there to talk about, but this there is so much in the story you mentioned about current events that's relevant. There's so much happening in the world. We talk a lot about like filmmakers trying to find their voice or trying to talk about things that matter to them. How do you handle as a team, as an individual, touching on all these things, representing your your moral code, also trying to tell a good story, also, you know, trying not to, trying to have a light touch where you can about things that are so big. Uh, it's a, a lot to do, right? Yeah. How do you balance it all? What are kind of your guidelines? Like, I think there's a lot of people out there who want to make movies that matter these days. Yeah. So how do you do that? That's hard. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to get money to do that, but it's it also just hard to do it. <laughs> it is. I, I'm glad you touch upon that. Well, for anyone who's listening, uh, just to quickly summarize, the, the two characters, one is quite conservative and the other is liberal. And so they marry out of convenience because she's not able to get the health care she needs because uh, she has type 1 diabetes. And a lot of people that do just are not surviving because the insulin has become so jacked up. So she marries a Marine because they get $2,000 per month extra in benefits if they're married. And they also get health care. So they, they both benefit and split the money down the middle. And they and she Thank is, you for summarizing it. It, it. We don't want to get into spoilers, but thank you for summarizing it. I should have done that myself. But I think like you just touched on just in that quick summary. And you are good at pitching, obviously. As you mentioned <laughs> earlier, you touched on all the things that are going on in this movie. There's a lot. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's, that is a lot of issues in one little plot. I know. Summary. 
And then, by the way, you know, he gets injured. They think he's just headed off to Iraq for a year. It'll be like easy sailing. She'll get the benefits. He'll get the money. But he's injured in Iraq. And then suddenly, because he's having to do physical therapy, they are forced to play house and live together under one roof. And so for me, that's like, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell having to like work out their differences <laughs> and fall in love. So like, you know, like you, um, I felt so excited about the fact that I could inject a little bit of like the impotent frustration and, 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 you know, rage that I feel in current events right now and be able to try to put it into the movie, but you don't want to be heavy handed, right? Because it's a romance and you have to have people drawn in and not feel like they're being like spoon fed something or that it's really didactic. So it was a balance. And I have to say there was a lot more in the original script that then had to get parsed out. Because like Netflix kept saying to me, Liz, you have to trust your audience. Because you know, I had so many like in, like ideas in there, and you know, and like a pretty staunch, heavy hand. And you know, as as we as we continued to refine it, we would pull stuff out because the characters did a really good job. The actors did a great job depicting these these characters from different walks of life. And so we were able to have a shorthand and not have to have them state you know their perspectives you know so often. I can't tell you how many times the word snowflake was taken out of this of the final cut <laughs> because you know we didn't need him to call her that you know it was it was just finding that delicate balance where you can still kind of explore the themes you want but not have it be distasteful to an audience who's looking to be entertained so netflix was trying to say to you like don't overstate like don't use the the word snowflake for example because people will get it you can trust them yes um and by the way i wow. should i should preface that it was also my producers the les morganstein the guy that brought me the script to begin with i tend to be a little bit more heavy handed and he he kept saying is there you have to trust it it's in the subtext you know and what so what a great asset to have in producers in yeah, the studio yeah. that they can help you pull back instead of the opposite right oh my god totally totally you're you're absolutely right because oftentimes and maybe that's why i'm a little heavy handed i have worked within the studio system a lot and so the, that mentality of like you know walking the audience through beat by beat is sort of ingrained in me and that's not really right. the sensibility of netflix so yeah that's that's a good point and I really enjoyed the collaboration with my whole team because of that. Like we were a checks and balances. That's awesome. That's like an ideal scenario. So once you you kind of got through it, did you feel like in response, like we'd said what we wanted to say? We have said it in a responsible, meaningful manner. We've touched on the issues. We've also told a good story. Like, do you feel like you threaded the needle? Are there things that you look at and think like, no, maybe we needed to do more or less or this differently. I mean, it must have been a challenge, right? It was definitely a challenge. And, you know, you never fully know until it's out there, which, you know, we sort of give birth to it on Friday. So we'll see how the baby bears out in the world. But, you know, I'll admit that the movie itself is a fantasy. The idea that two people from opposite walks of life can actually come to love each other's differences long-term seems unlikely, but I wanted to put the fantasy out there because it's at least a place to start and to discuss things. And so, you know, I imagine that cynical critics won't totally, you know, embrace that fantasy and, and will, you know, find snarky ways to, to poo-poo it. But for me, that's 
the lens with which I want to look through the world, you know, um, because it feels a yeah. little hopeless right now. And so like, for me, I just wanted to have that exercise of exploring it. And I love it. I love the idea that we can all kind of work through our differences and, and learn to listen and become slightly more moderate. I would say that one of the things that I do think is successful, because you're asking, like, have I achieved it? Have I threaded that needle? For me, the the best moment is the fact that she, the, our liberal heroine, has now masqueraded as a military wife, and she has to go to deployment. She's never been on the military base before, and even though she lives outside the gates, and she has to see her husband off to deployment, you know, to a hotspot that's like dangerous and risky to go to, and she has to watch all the families like hug their loved ones and see them off as a sacrifice for her country and for democracy. And it opens her eyes because she had always sort of looked at the military as um, men with guns, you know, and so it opens her eyes to a whole new world and she's concerned for their welfare while they're over there. And so her music had been kind of niche and she was mostly doing covers, but she starts to like channel that into a song. And then interestingly, that song strikes more of a nerve because it is more moderate and because it's listening and because it's about something that's bigger than just her and mm. her little echo chamber. And then on the flip side, he's always, you know, even in the beginning when he's asking her about her musical instruments, he's, he's sort of snubbing his nose at it a little because I think he looks more at like, you know, a nine to five job. And he's like, wow, that must be rough being a musician. And he doesn't really understand the arts. And then he gets to watch, have a front row seat to the creative process and to actually almost being the influence within the song. And like he starts to appreciate the arts. And so there's this interesting gelling that happens within that first song that she develops called Come Back Home mm. that I feel like is when they actually start to hear each other. And so that to me, you know, if nothing else, like I, I achieved that and I feel like that's a start, you know? Yeah, sometimes we get caught up in the idea that movies are supposed to represent reality, right? As opposed to representing maybe the best case or <laughs> yeah. oftentimes people want them to represent the worst case, right? Yeah. And we mire ourselves in that, but there's a long history, certainly in movies in the 1930s where the whole purpose of them was to try and say like, Hey, let's just pretend, let's just imagine like if it could be really good or really better um, because it's so hard. So we'll see, you never know yeah. uh, how audiences respond, but it's it's a noble cause to try and put something out into the universe, right? That yeah. that reflects maybe a better version of ourselves that we can't find yeah, every day. Yeah, that's a good way to say it, yeah. Did you find, you know, in working with your actors, for example, did you find that it was hard to communicate to them, you know, like getting past these divides that we see today that are so hard to get past? Did you find it hard to get them to the authentic place? you know, of like really, you know, this is real. They have surmounted this because it's so easy to see how to make the conflict like ironclad. Mm -hmm. Like we're not going to reach across the aisle, so to speak. Like that's easy. The hard part is convincing people that they could, you know? Yeah. And I found that because I swing pretty liberal um, politically, but I'm very much about communicating and compromising. I was really worried that I wouldn't be able to represent the red side of the aisle very well. So that was the, the biggest thing that I worked on with Liz Garcia, our writer. But then also a fair amount of the dialogue ended up being improv because like the actors got really into the characters and 
we let them play and, and they were, they really understood their perspectives. But I was constantly worried and focused on making sure that the, the points that our lead Luke make are really valid and that his family comes from a place of like, I guess, intelligence and just having a point of view that was strong and valid and, and, and not just have, having to be unbalanced, you know? Right. So, like you didn't want to look down your nose at it, so yeah, to speak. Yeah. And sort of like that, that would be, I'll be honest for me, pretty damn hard. <laughs> like, so <laughs> I, so I respect the, the challenge and taking it on and being like, we're going to make it, we're going to treat both equally, right? Yeah. We're going to treat them both as reasonable people. Yeah. And um, see the negatives of both of them too. You know, like right. she gets so staunch a few times, you know, that it almost gets really annoying and we're like, okay, stop sure. it already with your preaching, you know, and, and, yes. and he'll call her out on it and, and vice versa. Um, so yeah, yeah he, um, our lead, um, Nick Galaxine, he's British. And so we did hesitate for a minute about that just because, you know, he's representing really, truly a slice of Americana like third generation right. military and stuff, but he was a, you know, fine enough actor that he was able to, to research a lot. He spent a lot of time talking to Marines and, and, uh, and, and I feel like he represented it really well. Well, it's really exciting. Congratulations on the film and the release. Um, we will definitely, uh, hope to have you back next time <laughs> you have a project and, uh, I, I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you. You too. You asked such great questions. Thank you. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> Thanks so much, Elizabeth, for coming on the podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'm really struck by the idea that you can make a movie about things that matter with the perspective you have, understanding that maybe you are going a little bit into the realm of fantasy to try and project a better future, better world than the one we live in. These are such noble causes if you're going to try to use this medium and do these things. Everybody making movies and making television talks about how there's so much importance to story and, and how what we do or what they do matters. And to some extent, it's true, but I think it's more true, perhaps, when you're talking about really topical, really complex stuff. And you're trying to open people's minds to things that they hadn't considered. We really need more of that. So I'll get off my soapbox, but I'm just impressed with people who are managing to pull that off in this complicated time and extremely complicated market for film. Be sure to check out everything No Film School related at nofilmschool.com. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, head over to our Instagram and our YouTube where there is more stuff all the time. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. Leave a comment and let us know what you think. Send us your questions at editor at nofilmschool.com. We love hearing from you. We have done so many episodes recently where we circled back to topics that we brought up where readers and listeners chimed in and provided us with information and perspectives we didn't have that then we could talk about again. And that's the spirit of what we do on this podcast and on this website is we try to involve all of you in the conversation and learn from you as much as we have things to share that hopefully you can learn from. So we're all in this together. Thanks so much for listening.